when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hey guys, Sari Delamont here. This is a recent Facebook Live that we've uploaded as a podcast. Enjoy. Thank you everybody who is here today and, and, and visiting with us. Um, want to make sure that we get everything going the way that we want it to go in terms of technology. Christy, am I up on the screen? Yes. Am I big or small? I just see your name. Maybe if you unmute your, if you mute yourself, that will help. Okay. There we are. All right, great. So welcome everybody. We are going to be talking today about why I wrote the book and how you can get the most out of your reading experience. Um, we've got, you know, the launch party and the copies here, and I've got one copy that I'm going to be taking you through. If you have your copy, this is a great time to take it out. I'm going to walk you through how I put the book together. But let me first start by telling you about why I wrote the book in the first place. So I've always wanted to write a book, and that was even before I started working in the communication field or even working with trial attorneys. And I made several attempts, not very good attempts, but I did make several attempts to write a book. And it just never came together for me until I, I found, and this is, is quite honest, my tribe, which I feel is trial lawyers, and particularly trial lawyers that go to trial, civil trial attorneys and criminal defense. And it wasn't until I really got into the trenches with you all that I realized that there was something that no one was talking about. And what that thing was is that jurors are hostages. Now, jurors don't know that they're hostages. I don't even think that they have that, that framework in their mind of something that makes sense to them. But what they do know is that they have to go to this thing that they don't want to go to and that this thing isn't very fun and it takes time out of their lives and they can't get out of it, although many of them try to get out of it. And so all of the talk about you know, how jurors make decisions or how we should put our opening statement together or presentation skills or all of that, I really found was putting the cart before the horse because until we addressed this hostageness of jurors and how they feel trapped by this system, we were not going to get very far. So that's really where the idea was born from, is that just doing the work that I am allowed to do and very blessed to do with you, I started to realize that jurors are hostages. Uh, but then I realized something really important as well, is that not only are jurors hostages, but you're a hostage too. The number one thing that I see across the board with trial attorneys is that you have been taken hostage by fear fear of the jurors, fear of losing, fear of not getting it right, fear of what method should I use, what's the right way to do all of this. And in my mind, that made things really clear. And that was how I decided to write the book because you and jurors are in the same boat. And between the two of you, you can rescue yourself. I really believe that trial work is personal work. 
and that in order to do this work and to do it well, and not just to do it well, but to have some fun doing it, it's going to take the opportunity to look deep inside yourself and reconnect with why you got into this work in the first place and show that person to the jury. I, I know there's a lot of um, people out there might be thinking, what is this, some woo-woo bullshit stuff? There's some woo-woo stuff in there, not bullshit. This is a very practical book, so don't get me wrong. It is chock full of skills. But in terms of why I came up with, with the concept in the first place is I just saw I'm gonna say suffering, both in my clients and in the jurors, and I think it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary suffering, and we don't need to suffer, and I hope that this book alleviates some of your suffering. All right, so let's talk about the book, and again, if you don't have a copy, you can get one at fromhostagetohero.com, and um, what, Trial Gods is, we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. We'd be very happy to have you purchase a copy of the book. Um, and if you do have one, you can be following along with us now. As Christy mentioned, you're gonna to wanna to stay on till the end, whether you're on Zoom or on Facebook, because the Q and A's, which you can be start loading those in now as you have questions. Um, if you give me a question, it can be any question. Sorry, how did you get in this line of work? What did, you know? What's a normal day for you like? It doesn't matter. It can be the book or anything you want to ask. Uh, if you ask a question, you'll be entered into a drawing, and we're going to do that drawing live here for a free signed copy of the book. In fact, I'll sign it right here in front of you so you have proof that it was actually me. All right, so let's talk about how I put the book together. I'm thrilled that my best friend and editor, um, how would I say that, Rachel? Not the editor, in my real editor, but my actual real editor. She read every draft. Um, Rachel Beam is here. Thank you, Rachel. Rachel is in the um, acknowledgments because I do want to acknowledge her both in the book and here personally. Thank you, Rachel, for all your help. All right, so when we open the book, we have all the nice things that people said about me, so make sure you, you read that. I'm thrilled. You know, my, When they asked me for who I wanted to dedicate the book to, it really came down to all of you because I really feel that the, the biggest thing holding you back is that you feel you are not enough, which is why you fly to CLE to CLE, you buy every book that's, that Trial Guides puts out, please buy this book, um, that you hire, hire consultants and do everything you possibly can. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. If you're coming from a sense of addition, meaning I want to do these things to add to my already greatness versus I have to do these things because I am not enough. So I start the book with, to any lawyer who has ever felt I am not enough, this book is for you. I was thrilled that my friend and colleague and mentor and badass extraordinaire, Randy McGinn wrote the forward. Randy, love you. Thank you for your support. So you can read what Randy says there. And of course, there's the acknowledgments. Now, the introduction, a lot of people skip the introduction of books. I suggest you read the introduction. It gives you a little background on me and my journey. Uh, a lot of people ask me, how the heck did you be become a trial consultant? And my answer to that is, I don't have any idea, really. I fell into this line of work. I'm a classically trained pianist. This is not in the book. That's why I'm telling you here. This gives you a little bit of the, the version of my first lawyer and beyond. But before my first lawyer, I had uh, two advanced degrees in music. I went to grad school with my good friend, Rachel, 
who's also a classically trained pianist. And I've been teaching for years. And then I got into communications work by working in the school district randomly through my sister, who was a school teacher. That brought me to nonverbal communication work. That brought me to corporate work. That brought me to the Oregonian doing an article um, and a lawyer calling, which is where the book starts. So if you want to hear a little bit more about that story, that'll be in the introduction. Basically, the introduction is talking about why we need this book, why uh, we have an issue when it comes to the way that we view jurors and the way that we view ourselves and this work. And I say ourselves, I mean you as trial attorneys. I feel I've been adopted by you. Thank you um, for that. But that's really what the introduction's about. It's kind of my heart of, of, for why I wrote this book. All right, so the book is then divided into two parts. There's part one, preparing for a mission, and then there's part two, operation rescue. So the part one is all about why jurors are hostages and how you can see them differently and why you yourself are a hostage as well. And so chapter one is we have a hostage situation. And this is gonna really take you through the brain science of why and what happens, I should say, to jurors' brains when they first enter the courtroom. And why understanding that is so important. I talk about the SCARF model, for example. The SCARF model is developed by David Rock. He wrote many books, but the one that, that I first read this concept in was called Your Brain at Work by David Rock. It's not about jurors at all. It's all about the brain and stress. And he talks about five different factors that when we either elevate or reward the brain in these five ways, that's a good thing. The brain sees that as a reward. The brain feels good. Or if we attack or put those things under attack, those five factors, the brain sees that as an attack and it's, it's not a good thing at all for the brain. So those five factors are status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And I go through that in depth in chapter one about how when we attack a juror's status, which we do naturally, we make them speak in public, answer personal questions. They don't know who anybody is. They don't know what the right answer is. They don't even know what the topic is in most cases. Status is under attack. Uh, there's no certainty. They don't know how this process works. They don't know when lunch is. They don't know anything. There's no autonomy. They can't choose to not be there, at least without big consequences. There's no relatedness. They don't know each other. They don't know you. They don't know anybody. And the whole thing feels unfair. And because of that, brain is under attack. And we need to understand that as trial attorneys so that we can start to turn that around. But we can't fix a problem that we don't understand. And so that first chapter, we have a hostage situation. It's all about why jurors are hostages and how to view them differently. Now, at the end of every chapter, I think pretty much every chapter, and there may be a few that there aren't, we have in activities to practice or something for you to do. You know, when I first went to uh, write this book, I thought, how the heck am I going to write a book on nonverbal communication? And of course, the book isn't all about nonverbal communication, but the skills part definitely focus in on nonverbals. And so a big, and we'll talk today too about how to take your journey further. But to get you started, when, at the end of every chapter, do the exercises because they're really going to help you in terms of shifting your mindset and also shifting your skill level. And again, I'll talk about that in a little bit more depth. So at the end of chapter one, there's some activities for you to practice on how to see jurors differently. In chapter two, trial second victim, guess who that is? 
yeah, that's you. You are also a hostage, like I said at the beginning. And in this chapter, what I do is take you through four limiting beliefs. By the way, there are many more, but these are the four that I see almost all trial attorneys struggling with on some level or other. And those are things like, there's a right way to do this, this meaning trial. And uh, I have to be like so-and-so famous trial attorney in order to win. Winning is the only acceptable outcome. That's another limiting belief. We're so big on winning. And if I don't win, that means I'm a bad trial attorney. And if I do win, that's I'm a good trial attorney. And boy, that just roller coaster. You got to get off that roller coaster. And then the, the idea that um, if you lose, you're a bad trial attorney. That's another one. So in this chapter, I take you through some breathing practices, talking about how breathing is really important in order for you to communicate well later in the book, but here just to take a breath and to calm the shit down because there's so much going on in your worlds as well that we need to calm and get centered and look at some of the stuff because yes, trial is stressful. Do not get me wrong. I'm not trying to suggest that trial is one big party and that it's all fun and games. But what I'm talking about in this chapter is that you are adding to your suffering unnecessarily by holding certain mind patterns that cause you to suffer that you can get rid of right now, today. You can decide to think differently, which will cause you to feel differently, which will then cause you to act differently and get a different result. And so I go into that, into the free, um, into this chapter and the third chapter, which is free yourself first. So the chapter two is how you're a victim of scarf as well as, as jurors. In fact, let's talk about that for a minute. If we go back to those five factors, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness, aren't you also a victim of those things? Meaning your status, if you're a trial attorney and a civil trial attorney at that, a plaintiff attorney is in the toilet, is it not? <laughs> I mean, come on now. We do not have a great uh, reputation out there. So your status is kind of, and then you have very little certainty, you know, as we talked about. What's the right way to do this? What's the CLE I should attend? Should I use you know, Jerry Spence's method or Nick Rowley? I mean, maybe I should do Rick Freeman. No, 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 you know what? I should do this one. You have no certainty. You have no autonomy. You can't choose which jurors you want and, and force them to, to vote your way. You don't know the jurors either. There's no relatedness. And because of that, a lot of this feels really unfair. So you're a victim too. And so chapter two talks about how you're a victim. Chapter three, free yourself first, is all about the limiting beliefs and how you can start to get rid of them. And, and that throughout that chapter, instead of at the end having one, um, activity to practice. There are many throughout the chapters in or throughout the chapter in the, the gray boxes here and there. Okay. Um, I'm just checking down here to see if there's anything. Oh, Chrissy's just saying, make sure you put a question so you can win the free book. All right. That takes us to chapter four. So chapter one is about jurors. Chapter two and three is about you. Chapter four takes us to permission, the permission principle. Here is what we're talking about in trial. You guys talk a lot about trust and how you need to get the jurors to trust you. And what I'm gonna suggest, and what I go into depth here in this chapter, is that you don't need jurors to trust you, not at the beginning at least. What you need from jurors is permission. 
So permission is like, you can think of it as like a thermometer. It's taking the temperature of the communication. So when you start Wadir, for example, and the, the communication feels very stunted, cold, you can't get people to talk, why? You have very little permission. Contrast that with you're out with your friends and you're joking around and you're making the crass jokes. You know who you are on here. I know the crass joke makers on here. And you have tons of permission. You can get away with a lot of shit because these are your peeps. Okay, that's what we're talking about, we're talking about permission. How receptive are people to you and your message? Meaning when you do something wrong, if you have a lot of permission, you get a lot of grace. But if you don't have a lot of permission, people are gonna hold you to it. So your job throughout trial, and that's the whole premise of the book when we get into the four steps, is to gradually increase permission with jurors so that you can get away with a little bit more every moment that trial continues. That you get a little more permission, a little more permission, a little more permission. Because what do we normally do? We come out and what, what, we want the jurors to act. We want them to act now. But we can't ask them to act now because we don't have enough permission to ask them to act now. So we have to go in a very systematic, step-by-step -step fashion, which is part two of the book. So permission principle takes you through the whole idea of what permission is, gives you lots of examples, non-courtroom and courtroom examples of permission. And people have told me already this is one of their favorite chapters. And permission is just such a fun thing to talk about. All right, chapter five, actions speak louder than words. In this chapter, we talk about the importance of nonverbal communication. Because the number one question I get after talking about permission is, okay, sorry, I'm buying that I need permission with jurors. How do I get it? And the answer is nonverbal communication. Now, I don't mean you need to mime your way to you know, a relationship with jurors. What I mean is you have to get your nonverbal communication under control and be purposeful if you ever want to have a chance to increase permission with jurors. And the question is why? Well, because first off, you are inadvertently communicating nonverbally all the time. So if you don't know what you're communicating nonverbally, you are inadvertently sending messages you may not want or mean to send. And that is not a good place for you to be when you're trying to increase permission with jurors. You want to be in a, in a place where you can purposefully be doing the nonverbal things that you are already doing. People always just say, oh, you teach people to communicate non-verbally. No, 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 You communicate non-verbally all the time. I teach you how to do it systematically and purposefully. We've had trial attorneys who've been practicing 20, 30 years. In fact, that's the majority of my clients have been practicing 20 plus years. Uh, and they come into a studio class and we've got the cameras and the whole thing in front of the mock jury. And on Sundays, we put them in front, we, we debrief the video and they are amazed at the weird ass shit that they are doing that they had no idea they were doing in the first place. So for example, one attorney is, as a juror speaking, he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then he's darting his eyes around the box, trying to see what the other jurors think about this. And he had no idea he was doing that. Well, what is he communicating to jurors? That he's not really listening. And he didn't mean to communicate that. He was doing it inadvertently, but until he could see it, he couldn't change it. 
Now, I think we all get on a certain level that how we communicate would be helpful, right? This is why you might come to a seminar of mine or pick up this book. What I'm here to say is that this isn't just helpful. This is essential. Essential. I don't think you can be a kick-ass trial attorney without excellent nonverbal communication skills. And here's why. Actions speak louder than words. Meaning you can say all day long to jurors, whatever, let's pick one. You're so important. You guys are the most important people in the room. And yet your eyes will dart around the box and yet you'll cut off a juror or you'll make them wrong during voir dire or whatever you do nonverbally. And the jurors are like, yeah, I feel super important. Thanks. Just because you said it verbally. There's research that shows that if a message is delivered and the verbal and nonverbal do not match, the listener believes the nonverbal communication message every single time. So that's what this chapter is all about, is why you must get systematic in your nonverbal communication and how to get started. And it talks a little bit about um, where we're moving to um, in terms of the nonverbal areas of focus. So at the end of that chapter, I say in the next, you know, as we start moving through the steps, we're going to look at what to do with your body, what to do with your voice, what to do with your gestures, and what to do with your eyes. And then, of course, we'll also talk about breathing and how to use the space. So that really sets up how the rest of the book is going to go in terms of the nonverbal areas of focus. It's always about eyes, body, gesturing, voice, and then also breathing in space. Those are all the six things that are always in play as we go through the four steps. So the next chapter is introduction to the four steps. So here are the four steps to From Hostage to Hero. Is that to move jurors from hostage, or yourself, from hostage to hero, you have to take them systematically through four steps. The first step is you have to create or introduce, I say, safety. When people are in a situation where they don't understand the rules, they don't understand how this works, they don't know each other, the brain's under attack, their status is on the line, blah, 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 all those things I talked about in the first chapter, the first thing they need is not for you to ask them to do something. You need to give them something. And what you're gonna give them is safety. You're gonna show up as a guide and you're gonna communicate non-verbally, I've got this and I'm gonna lead you through this and you're safe here. If you are a game person, like board games, by the way, I am not a game person. And every time I go to a party, which is not that often because I don't like games, and people tend, tend to love them, and Rachel, I know you love them, um, and they, I get dragged into playing a game, which I always do, what is my first question? My first question is always, what are the rules? How does this game get played? That is what's up jurors' minds too. They're like, how does this work? The first thing we do is we start asking them questions. We start saying, we start the entire process taking from them when we should be giving to them. That's step one. Give them safety. Now I'll talk to you about in further chapters how to do that, but this chapter is all about giving you an overview of the, of the steps. The second step, once jurors start to feel safe, is now you need to invite engagement. Now, if they feel safe, you can get them playing and talking to you. By the way, when you say, the jurors won't talk to me, sorry, man, it's so hard to get them talking. Yeah, they don't feel safe. And all you are is take, 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 take. When instead it should be give. You give, then they give back. 
That's how life works, does it not? You have to give something in order for them to want to give. So here you now invite them to play with you. And if you've done the first step correctly, you'll be able to get them to engage, okay? The third step, so we've got safety, engagement. Third step is to invite commitment. So now you're going to say, here's what this is about. I invite you to, to rally behind this idea, this, this client, this concept. And the fourth step is to ask them to take action for you and your client. Now, notice how that's the last step, not the first step. I mean, imagine this was a blind date and <laughs> you were sitting down with the girl that you just met on eHarmony. I'm dating myself. I don't even know the names of these things. And five minutes into your coffee date, you get down on one knee and you're like, will you marry me? What is she going to think? Are you fucking crazy? I don't even know you. But don't we do this with jurors? We just come right in and we go, here's what this is about and this is what we want you to do. Now tell me all about your life and your personal stuff. And they're like, eh, nope, nope, not playing, not gonna play. So we need to methodically move them from hostage to hero. Safety, engagement, commitment, action. That's how this works. And by the way, isn't that what you did before you took the case to trial? Didn't you first determine whether it was safe? Was there any money in this? Could I win this thing? And to order to find that out, you engaged with the case a little bit. You asked some people about it, did some discovery. Then you're like, all right, I'm taking this. I'm going to do it. I'm taking it to trial. You committed. And then you took action and actually went to trial. You're you and the jurors are in the same boat. Are you seeing that? You're, they're going through a journey that you already went through. And your job is to lead them through that journey. And by the way, your role changes with each step. In the first step, your guide when you want to provide that safety. In the second step, now you're facilitator. So your nonverbals are going to change. In the third step, when you want commitment, now you're teacher because they need information to commit. And once you get to the fourth stage, which is action, now you're leader. You're going to empower them to go back in that verdict room and bring you a verdict for your client. Notice also, in terms of permission, that you are giving jurors a um, choice at every stage. Choice is the one thing they really don't have, right? That's that autonomy line. They really don't have choice. So you, at, when you give them safety, you're allowing them to choose to be present, to get out of their fight or flight space and just be there and be like, all right, maybe I could do this. And then when you engage with them, you're giving them the choice to participate. And when you go to commitment, you're giving them the choice to commit and then choice to take action. Notice how every choice builds on the choice before it and every choice is a little harder than the choice before it. That's how it's designed. That's how it works. This is how communication works. So that's the chapter six, introduction to the four steps and talks to you a little bit about how the next parts are going to be put together because that brings us to part two. By the way, I should stop here and say that the book does not cover cross-exam and direct exam. So the book is covering all of the times that you speak to or with jurors directly. Now, does cross-exam and direct exam support this? Absolutely, and I'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to um, the chapter on opening, because it, it makes sense there of what I mean here. 
but what we're talking about is the times that you directly are speaking to the jurors. So you don't expect things on direct exam and cross-exam. And I've got some, some resources in there for things for you to check out if you're looking for information there, but that's not what I'm covering in this book. All right, that brings us to part two. So now we're ready. We understand that they're hostages, that we're hostage to, that we gotta get rid of our mental shit in order to really fully show up and lead these guys to action. We know that we're after permission and that the way to get permission is nonverbal communication and that our nonverbal communication is going to change as we move through those four steps. All right, part two. So step one is introduce safety. Introduce safety. So that's where we are now going to talk about the three R's of safety. So here's how I set up the chapters on step one, two, three, and four. I tried to give you something in terms of the verbal component, meaning here's what you say, all right? And then there's a chapter or more on here's what you do and read. So in every section, in the safety section, at the end of safety, you can check and see if you've, been, if you've done all the steps. There's some milestones for you. Here's what to say to create safety. Here's what to do to create safety. And here's what to read to see if, in fact, the jurors feel safe. So in chapter seven, the three R's of safety, we talk about how what jurors need are reason, rules, and relatedness. And so they need reason. Why are they there? <laughs> we tend to think of, well, they're there because it's trial. That's why they're there. They're there to decide the case. Well, that's like saying, you know, the reason for the dinner party is to eat. That's not, that's not what I mean by giving a reason. There's various reasons why we throw dinner parties and there are various reasons why we have a trial. You need to clearly communicate to them why we're here and what they need to do. And I tell you how to do that here. Then we go into the rules. This is the whole, how do we play the game section? And in here we talk about my designed alliance, which has been getting a lot of action. People are loving this designed alliance piece. So basically, this is the, the part of trial where you tell jurors how this works. And this is the one part I'm going to read to you today out of the book, because this has been the favorite of everybody that's come and worked with me since I wrote the book. Here's how I suggest you start after giving jurors the reason. This is how you design an alliance, meaning how you and the jurors are going to be together in trial and how, how this works. Ladies and gentlemen, most people called for jury duty believe the process of jury selection is where the attorneys on each side get to question you and then pick who is most sympathetic to their case. In other words, we cho choose you whether you want to be chosen or not. Now, I don't like to do jury selection that way because it's unfair. You should be able to decide whether this is a case you'd like to serve on or not. So here's my first question. How many of you are willing to have a conversation with me about this case and then, after we're done, let me know if you'd like to be a juror? And then you'd raise your hand. Now, nearly every juror is gonna raise their hand, why? Because you have just promised them freedom. They're like, oh, hell yeah, I just need to talk to you and then I can get out of this? Hell yeah, I'm gonna participate. But I continue. Now. I'm under some restrictions from the judge. I can't give you any specifics about the case, and we won't be discussing evidence, but I would like to have a conversation about some of the principles involved in the case so you can at least know the types of things you'll be wrestling with at the end of trial should you decide to become a juror. And once we're done discussing those principles, I'm gonna ask if you'd like to join the jury. 
are you willing to have a conversation where you can learn a little bit more about the principles in the case and I can learn about your experiences and thoughts related to those principles? You raise your hand again. Now, those of you who know anything about sales, this is a sales technique to get them to continue to say yes to you. So again, you're saying, look, I can't talk details. Are you still willing to talk to me? Okay, third thing. Now, for those of you who would rather not be on the jury after we have our conversation, I will do everything in my power to ensure you can go home, but I am limited in that there are two sides represented here and the other side also gets to make some choices. Knowing I cannot guarantee you'll be able to go home, are you still willing to participate? Now, notice a couple things. Some people said a judge will never let me get away with that. So change it from choose to be on the jury to want to be on the jury. You're allowed to ask them if they wanna be there. But second, notice how if they still get on the jury, whose fault is it? You say there are other people represented here and they get to make some choices too. Now you've thrown them under the bus if the jury ends up. But here's the other thing. If they say after this, even if they're a good juror for you, I don't wanna be on this jury, you have to keep your promise and use a peremptory on them if at all possible. That's how this works. These are not gimmicks or manipulations or techniques. These are real things for you. You're saying to them, I want to know who wants to be here because here's what's important to me. I want to build a jury of team members who want to bring justice. I do not want to look at the jury, which is so different than a lot of other people and say, who here is out to get me, kill all those people and then just deal with whoever's left. How is that any way to build a team? It's not. So off the bat, I'm saying, I'm looking for people who want to be here. Who wants to be here? Now, I know you can't answer that right now because you don't know enough, but are you at least willing to have a conversation with me to know a little bit about what, what it would entail and then let me know if this is something you'd want to do? And I'll tell you, in our mock juries, the hundreds of mock juries that we've had here, our jurors love this process because they feel that they have more control now, that it's in their hands. And by the way, that's what Wadir should always feel like that is very jury centric. So that's what the three rules of safety, and we talk a little bit about um, the third R, it's not the three rules, three R's, which is um, relatedness and how lack of relatedness is a problem. All right, once we talk about that, that brings us to chapter eight, which is introduce safety to build permission. And that's all the nonverbals of safety. So how do you communicate that you are that guide that will, will guide the jurors through the process. We've got lots of pictures about how to communicate authoritatively and what not to do with your hands and how to not communicate that you are nervous and all those kinds of things because if you communicate that you are nervous, um, that's not a good sign for the jury. And that says to them they should be nervous. We talk about how to read your breathing to see if they are safe. And we have pictures in there about that. If you've read the book, this would be a great um, time for you to give me some questions about, if you have questions about that. Here's the safety check I was talking about. All the things that you should be doing, saying, and reading. And if you can check all of these things, then you have done your job and you can move on to step number two. All right, step number two is invite engagement. So once the jury feels safe, now we want to get them to engage with us. And that is, uh, I believe, four chapters. As those of you who know me, you know that voir dire is my favorite thing. And obviously that came out in the book because <laughs> there's so much here um, on voir dire, which is the time where we engage with jurors, of course. So chapter nine is all about how to create what I call an issue-oriented voir dire, 
or a voir dire in which we talk about the actual principles in the case versus hobbies and what are you reading lately and what are your passions. There's a time for that, for sure. Um, but it's not the only thing you should be doing. So that's all about how do you create a voir dire that gets to the issues in your case, which is what jurors are, are actually interested as well, and not get in trouble with the judge. I actually show you a winning verdict in there and how we built it step by step. So that will be really helpful to you. And there's a lot of all the gray boxes show you stop, do this now, create your water questions. Here's how you create the questions, so on and so forth. So that's what chapter nine is. Chapter 10 is the nonverbal piece, how to engage jurors to recruit heroes. All right. So that would be that section where we change nonverbals. Now we're going into facilitator. And then we have a whole two chapters on how to form the group and then how to work with that group once they're formed. This is like the part that I just love the most, how to work and for form and work with your jury. I would say once you get the jurors talking, there are three things you have to do now in voir dire. You have to follow up on what they're saying, facilitate a conversation, those are two different skills, and form the group. And so I go into detailed descriptions on how you do that. Groups are formed non-verbally, and once they're formed, how do you read them, work with them? I talk about the four um, types of jurors that will pop up and how to handle them. I'll talk about how to use your peremptory challenges, all of those things. All right, step three is commitment. That's opening. Now we're moving to opening. And so the first chapter, chapter 13, prepare an informative opening, is all about my opening structure and how to actually put your opening together. I use another winning case that I take you through step by step of how we put the case together in terms of the opening. And we talk about storytelling and all kinds of things. Chapter, where is it? 14, create an opening that sings, is all about some of the pitfalls that might happen once you actually put that opening together. Things that you wanna make sure you've avoided and if you've not, to go back and change it. And then chapter 15, is all about <clears throat> the nonverbals of how to show up as an engaging teacher, inspiring teacher, and how to use visuals and how to get away from PowerPoints and all that kind of thing. Step four then is insight action. And that's where we go to closing. And this is where you become leader. And by the way, here's that gray box for the commitment check. There's also one for engagement. So that's for every step you've got those. And this is where we talk about how to empower the jurors to go back and take action for you in the verdict room. You know, in the opening, we talk about how there's only three things you're doing in opening. You're either teaching, storytelling, or dealing with resistance. Meaning you're teaching about how the injury occurred or what companies should do before putting a product on the market. Then you're telling the story about you know, the defendant and what they did and how they hurt somebody. Later in the opening, you're telling the story about the plaintiff and, and how it affected them. Um, and then you're dealing with resistance in the opening when you're talking about things like how many will help or challenges to your case. Well, you bring back those three factors here in closing where you talk about your, the teaching that you're doing is the jury instructions. Here's what these mean. Here's how you should vote. Your storytelling when you tell a story about future plaintiff. So in the opening, we have two stories. The defendant's story, meaning how this all came down, the plaintiff's story, how it affected the plaintiff, how they are now. So that's past, present. In the closing, we now have future. 
what will happen to the plaintiff if they don't get help? What will happen if they do get help? You're going to paint that picture for jurors. And dealing with resistance, this is where you teach the jury, if someone in the back room says XYZ, a challenge to your case, here's how you answer that. Now, going back to direct and cross-exam, aren't you doing these things in direct and cross-exam? Your experts are teaching, your cross-exam is dealing with resistance, and your lay witnesses are telling stories. That's really all the three things you're doing in trial, period. So that's what that last chapter is about, is how to empower your jury to take action. And then we've got a conclusion, which is just a couple pages, and then an epilogue about how to be nice to yourself as you are learning these steps. That is the book, y'all. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And so a um, couple of things before we go to the Q&A. I hope that was helpful. First off is how do you get the most out of your reading experience? Well, here's what I would suggest. First of all, do the exercises in the book. I think that's really going to help you. I have lots of stuff in there that's very doing oriented because I want you getting into this. It's, it's one thing to read about nonverbal communication, but it's not going to help you unless you actually drop in and try these things. So that's the second thing I would suggest is that if you really want to increase your nonverbal intelligence and you can't come out and work with me or attend one of my classes, or you don't want to wait till then, start videotaping. I mean everything. I mean, not like, you know, when you're sitting on the toilet, but like taping everything you do, CLEs, in trial, whatever you can get away with, and then you watch it back. And the first step is to watch it back just to learn your habits now. Not to change anything, not to do anything differently, just how do I communicate now, because you cannot change what you do not understand or acknowledge. So videotape yourself, videotape yourself, videotape yourself. Get the book for your office, for your trial lawyer association, and get together once a week and work on the steps. Work the steps. That's not really what I want. Do that too. All you alcoholics out there. Um, but yes, do the steps together. Okay, come together and work this with the book. That's why I put together that way so you can get together with other trial attorneys and give each other feedback on how you're communicating non-verbally, how you're getting your messages across. I just, I just find that so, so helpful. We will be introducing, well, I say we will be, but honestly, the people on my private list um, and those are people who've already been and work with me will get an invite first. And if the, if the class fills, then I won't be um, mentioning it publicly. But I will be opening a special, sorry guys, women trial lawyers only co coaching cohort in January. I'm taking nine, maybe nine. You've got to apply for a spot. And um, it's going to be intense coaching for six months on trial and other stuff. So if you are a lady lawyer, be on the lookout for that. Or if you're like, please put me on the special list, um, I'll let you. I'll let you get on that on that list and apply for the program. So there's those are some ways that you can start your journey to nonverbal intelligence and being a kick-ass lawyer. You can also listen to my podcast. That's a wonderful way where I'm taking concepts from the book and teaching and talking. Get in the Facebook group. If you're not in the Facebook group, listen. It's a private group. It, we don't allow jurors in there or non-lawyers. I mean, there's a couple of consultants in there that I really trust, but it's just plaintiff, trial lawyers, and criminal defense. That's it. Nobody can see your posts. Get in there. We post a discussion question every week that you can get in and talk about. Post your questions to the book. That is the place to be active. I really want that place to be active. 
I'm going to be going in there live and teaching at least once a month starting in 2020 for sure. I'm committing to that. Get a coach. I'm unfortunately not taking one-on-one -on -one clients right now. I've been so busy and I've got my coaching cohorts and my trial consulting, but get a coach. I've got names. One of them's on here right now. Rachel Bean, excellent coach. My husband, Kevin Delamont, also great coach. I've got other names. If you want to really get good at both the mindset piece and the communication piece, you got to work with a coach. That's a great way to step up your game. So before we go into Q&A, here's what I want to leave you with. I do trial consulting and a lot of times people will call and want to book me for trial consulting and then their trial will go away and they'll want to cancel. And so what we've decided here in my office is that you don't get to do that anymore. And here's the reason. I've decided my work is not about trial. I love trial. I'm trial junkie. I'm like all about trial. I love trial. My work is about you as a trial attorney. Trial is just where we play with these things. I'm more concerned about you and how you show up and how you want to show up and the life that you want to live. And trial is a great place to work out a lot of your shit, but we don't need a trial to do that work. So when you come out and you work with me, whether at a studio or trial consulting or the other ways that Chrissy's going to tell you about, if your trial goes away, you still come. Why? Because we can still do the work. We can prep as though we are prepping for trial because trial is just the playground in which we play. So that's what I want to leave you with is, do you want to take the next step? My last podcast on Friday was about stopping being a runner and trying to be the best runner ever and realize that this work is about flying. Do you want to take off and fly? Because that's what this book is going to help you do. And that's what I'm here to help you do. But what I'm not here to help you do is just be some other formula that you can look at and be like, oh, this, does this work? Not work? Okay, I guess on to the next CLA. That's fine. And be on your way, but that's not what I'm about. Let's change this. Let's change it now. I'm here to help. All right. So let's see. Going to some Q&A. We are, this is your last chance. If you have a question, you must post it in Facebook or here on Zoom to be entered for the free drawing for the book. Because when I am done in the next, uh, let's Let's cut it off at 225, Christy. At 225, you can still ask me questions after 225, but if you have not posted a question, you are not entered in the drawing. All right, I'm just gonna take these um, in order. Christy, it sounds like you're putting them here in Zoom for me. If you could continue to do that so I don't have to check Facebook, that would be great. All right, John asks, your podcast is awesome. Thank you, John. I think it's pretty awesome too. And I'm looking forward to reading the book, yay! On the podcast, you've been mentioning some online workshops coming up. Where can we find out more information about those? Well, um, we were, and I'm sorry for the bad news about this, planning on launching an online membership that goes with the book in January. We've had to scale that back. And so that may not be open now until the fall of next week. So I apologize. We may not have any online courses until next fall just due to a lot of decisions I've been making in my work life. I'm really going to be focusing on consulting and my coaching cohorts, which I'm doing right now. One group is ongoing and then the women's one that I'm going to be starting. So as Christy will tell you, there's some other ways to work with me before then. And we hope I'll be in the Facebook live um, once a month teaching. I'm also thinking, let me know if you guys are interested in this in doing virtual voir dire circles. We've been doing this in the small group coaching and I just think it's so much fun. I'd be happy to do it for free where we just get together 
virtually like we are now and we just start a conversation i help you um follow up and facilitate i might be offering that on facebook until the um, membership is open in that fall so yes we had planned on doing that we had to push it back apologize for that my friend john you're just gonna have to come out and see me and have me torture you in person uh j michael okay you believe we can or should Use the suggestions from your book with focus groups for presenting the merits of cases considering time constraints. Oh, I'm assuming you're saying, do you believe we can? Okay, that's what you typed and I read it wrong. If yes, do you think doing so might add another variable that would make it difficult to assess the group's reasons for their particular opinions on the merits? So it's a great question. There's a big difference for me, um, Jay, Jay Michael, I'm not sure what I should call you, between focus groups and mock juries. So focus groups should be focused on finding out what they think about your case. In fact, when, when you come out to a studio class and we have the two mock juries that we take you through, or if you come out and consult with me, we have three mock juries over the week. So I constantly am putting you in front of mock juries just to hone your skills in these areas. Um, we always say, these are not focus groups. We're very clear about that. And I say to the jurors, we are not looking for information about the case as much as that would be helpful. And we will ask you and the, and the attorney I'm sure is going to want to talk to you about that later. But for right now, what we're looking for is communication feedback. So I think you're very smart to separate the two and that you do some focus groups when you're early on in the case and, and getting your case themes, or maybe you come out to work with me and you're like, you know what, I'm going to go focus group this, this idea that we had. But that should be earlier. And then you set up some mock juries as you get later in the case to practice the skills of forming, facilitating, doing all those things. Now, can you practice good presentation skills in a focus group? Yes. Can you practice how to listen well and how to follow up? You can practice all those things, but like shaping the conversation where you want it to go, definitely don't want to do that in a focus group. That's the, the antithesis of a focus group. So two different things. We have focus group and we have mock juries. And some things are overlapping in terms of skills, like getting people to open up and talk and good presentation skills. But in terms of, of really shaping and moving jurors the way you want them to go, that's a mock jury, my friend. That's not a focus group. Let me know if I did not answer that question correctly, and I will try again. Um, Tom Melville asks, how do you recommend that attorneys tell jurors that the lawyer is nervous or afraid? Or do you recommend that we hold that in and just do the job? Thomas, you know my answer to this. <laughs> my answer is probably gonna be a little bit more complicated than you might think. First of all, why are you nervous and afraid? There's nothing wrong with being nervous and afraid. Okay, and in fact, I have a great story in the book where I talk about that and how much the jury loved the attorney because he was nervous and didn't try to hide it and went on anyway. Um, and the reason for that, the reason they loved him is because he pushed on forward anyway. He communicated, I'm human, just like you. He, he non-verbally communicated, I care so much about this that, you know, I, I'll do it even if it makes my knees buckle. That said, so there's nothing wrong with nervousness. That said, there's some mindset component here to work on of why are you nervous in the first place? What thought pattern are you holding? that's creating the nervousness. If I was working with you as a coach, that's exactly where I'd go. And if you choose to work with a coach, tell them that's where you should go, is what's the nervousness about? We never ask that. We just assume that it it's part of the game and, you know, I'm nervous, so that's just how it is. No, 
you can like work on that and, and change your mind and start to walk in the court feeling like a badass, communicating like a badass. So that's the first thing. Why are you nervous? Second is no, I wouldn't say I'm really nervous and, you know, just be nervous. There's nothing to be said and push on anyway. That's that message the jurors received from the attorney in the book is that he was nervous and he went on anyway. And that showed them real um, fortitude. When you say, I'm really nervous, I'm sorry about that, what you're really doing is asking the jury to be okay with it. And it, again, it's asking the jury to give you something when we have to give first. So just give, just give, just show up. If you're nervous, show up anyway. Breathe, be there, be real, but don't ask them for anything. You're giving to them. They have given their time unwillingly. We have to make up for that at the very beginning, saying, Is it okay that I'm nervous? Or are you going to hold that against me? You're taking, no taking. Give, give to the jurors. Breathe and work through it and look at your shit about why you're nervous in the first place. Because <laughs> you don't need to be nervous. You guys, the reason you're nervous is because you're afraid of losing or messing up and all that stuff, which is what I talk about in chapter three. You can get over that. You have to get over it because your job, first of all, needs to be fun. Who wants to do this job if every time you stand in front of a jury, you're so nervous you're about to wet your pants? That's not fun. So let's work on that shit. And second, the jurors need it. They need you to be the hero first. You have to go first. So go first. Okay. Jim Price. Hi, Jim. Um, how do you recommend we deal with jurors blaming plaintiff for being on jury duty? Uh, yeah. I mean, they think that's why we're, they're there, right? So you recommend it, or I mean, how do you, how do you recommend it? You deal with it by showing them non-verbally how awesome, what an awesome chance they have. Not saying, okay, here, let's talk about permission. Telling jurors they're important at the beginning. Okay. Let's just, let's just step back about five hours in their day. No, let's take back about five weeks in their life. They get this jury summons in the mail. They're like, oh hell, that's what my big sales meeting is. And Johnny has this baseball game and God damn it. So well, maybe I can go and get out of this. So that morning they were like, I don't what, what are you supposed to wear to jury duty? I have no idea. Damn it. I'm running late. I don't have time for breakfast. They show up. They're hungry. They can't find a place to park. They finally figure it out. They walk in the building, they're looking out, they have to go through the security. Oh my God, I'm not the criminal here. Why do I need to go through security? All right, fine. Go through security. They go to this window where there's probably some rude person. They're like, you sit over there. They get the sticker slapped on them, shoved into a room, and then they have to wait there. In fact, if you saw on Facebook the other day, we had a juror that had waited seven hours. Seven hours. Okay, so let's pretend we're that juror seven hours. Now I'm going to get shuffled in this other room. And now I'm going to be sat down on these hard chairs. I get the chairs are getting better. I should actually lay off, lay off the chairs. And the first attorney to get up goes, thank you so much for being here. You are so important. You know what jurors think? Fuck you. You don't get it. I'm important. If I was important, then I could decide not to be here. That's not the case, is it? So we're talking about, we have to understand that they blame us, even though in reality, because the defense didn't take responsibility, they're the reason, but it doesn't serve us to go, they're actually the reason why you're here. What serves us is to meet the jurors where they are. They don't feel safe. They are pissed. So meet them there. 
enough with the hobby questions, enough with the, the stupid bias and pumpkin pie versus lemon pie, all that stuff. They're done with it. You be done with it too. Thank you for being here. I know that for some of you, it wasn't a, cho a choice you would have willingly made. Here's what we're here to do. There's your reason. Boom, now we're in the designed alliance. The minute you do the designed alliance and they're like, oh, I can have a, ch I have a choice. They start to thaw a little bit. Then they start hearing a little about the case. They start engaging with you and all your, you're just like this facilitator like person. They're like, I actually might be a little interested. This sounds actually kind of interesting. And you show up in a big way. You're passionate about your case, not too much in Boisdier, but you know, you're like, yeah, this is really exciting. I mean, let's talk about this. I mean, there's things that as a society we can fix through juries and talking about how that you think you're, you're, that works. And that's how we do it, Jim, non-verbally, non-verbally. We, we get that they're pissed. We get that nothing we say non-verbally will, will fix that. And so we show up in a big way saying, you had to come. I'm going to show up in a big way and make this worth your while. Just watch. Wait till you hear about this case. It's going to blow your socks up. You're going to so want to be participating in this. None of that said verbally. All of that is your energy. But what's the energy y'all normally come in there with? Who's here to kill me? One of these motherfuckers is out to get me. Who is it? And then you stand up front and you're holding all that in your head. One of you is out to get me. Hi. Um, thank you for coming. I'm so glad. We so believe in you in this process. They're not buying it. They're not buying it. So show up instead with, I cannot wait to talk to you about this case. That's going to change everything. And now I need some champagne, but not too much because I start taking my clothes off. We don't want that to happen. All right. Mm. Uh, Mandy, should we include your reactions to our presentation style when we do focus groups? Is there a way to have them answer that honestly? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, um, they sure answer it honestly here because we ask for honesty. It's always better to have someone else do that for you. So um, if you have someone there that you and, and, and actually have forms that are created, by the way, I'm happy to share our forms. So if you want to email our office, email Christy, Christy, K and an I, Christy, uh, at sorrydlm.com. She can send you the juror forms that we use here. And yeah, I'd say add those in there. Add those in there. And you might give it to them after the focus group part. So you have them all talking, blah, 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 and say, we'd love to have you fill out one more form. This is about the, the um, attorney's presentation style or your style as it might be, whatever it might be. So absolutely. But sometimes having someone facilitate that, and having them give verbal information, you just gotta make it really safe for them to do that. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why our jurors love to come. In fact, we, have, we didn't used to pay them. We do now, just because we do so many. We have people come for free. Our attorneys couldn't believe that. 12 and 12, the 24 jurors would come for free all the time. Why? Because when they gave me the verbal feedback or they gave it to the attorney about their communication style, we took that so seriously, they felt good. They were like, wow, I'm making a difference. This is a big deal. And they want to come back. This is what we need to make them feel like in real court too. So yes, Mandy, definitely. Michael, great, thanks. I will call you Michael from now on. Um, okay. Arcady, am I saying that correctly? I see you on Facebook a lot, um, my friends. So I'm, I'm so um, sad if I'm saying that incorrectly. What's the best way to improve your skills in forming the group? And what's the best way to improve nonverbal communication generally? Well, I already answered the, the second part, which is start videotaping everything you do 
And so you know exactly all the weird shit you're doing so that you can fix it. I mean, you can't fix something you're not aware of. All of the attorneys who come to the studio class, they drag themselves in here Sunday morning like, oh, this is the most terrible day. We have to look at our video. But they're like, this was the best day when they leave. They're like, this showed me so much of what I'm doing and how I can improve. So don't be afraid to look at that. How to form the group, this is gonna sound funny. Start throwing dinner parties and invite people who don't know each other. I mean, seriously, like, I don't know if you want Craigslist people in your house, but you know, maybe in your office, but literally just take the stuff in the book and apply it to a dinner party and say, there are three topics that I want to get them talking about. And I'm going to use some of our stuff. You guys always tell me, I can't do this. We're not in trial enough, blah, blah, blah. Communication happens everywhere. My friends, you can absolutely do this. So do it. Dinner party. That's what I would say. Throw a dinner party and start using these skills. Videotape it. Come work with me. Yeah. June, my friend. Um, how do you deal with obstructionist defense attorney trying to mess you up in forming the group and creating safety and facilitating? How do you do it without looking like we are getting into a petty fight with the defense? Well, June, I'm not really sure exactly what you're asking. Like you're forming the group and they're objecting? Or like, how are they messing you up? Um, I, that's, that's my question. Is if, I'm assuming you mean objections or jumping in. Um, you just, you're modeling to the group that it doesn't bother you. It, it, it's like, you, especially if you're doing a great job and you're having this great, I've seen this happen over and over again, and you're having this great conversation with the jury and, and they keep jumping in and objecting, the jury starts to get pissed because they're like, would you just let us have this conversation? We're having fun over here. So you just kind of get to go, you know, kind of give them a look like, sorry guys, let me handle this. Breathe, deal with the objection, the ways that we taught you when you were here at the studio. And you just come back to the jury. It's, 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 I mean, what can you do? If they're like this annoying fly, you can go, damn it to hell, you know? And that just shows that you've lost your shit in front of the jury. Or you can just be like, okay, blah, 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 <clears throat> DDD, and not let them take you off your game. You, my friend, because I know you personally are on a journey right now with mindset. So for you, this is a great place to start is how do I want to be? That's always the question I ask jurors first or attorneys first. They go, they come in with this problem. And I, my first thing is that before we go into what we're going to do here, how do you want to be with this? Because all doing flows from being. So if you say, well, I want to be calm Buddha master, then that gives you your answer right there. And you don't have to choose calm Buddha master. You can choose whatever you want, but how do you want to be with that is the question I would ask you. Michael, thank you. Perfect answer. Um, okay. So Tom, our lives and incomes depend on this. Depend on what? Am I giving you bad answer? Oh, <laughs> the nervousness uh, thing. Well, yeah, it totally does. That's why. I mean, you know, when Kristen and I were at our, at our, um, at our staff event in September, you know, we were talking about being big and, and being bold. And she's like, well, are you saying that that's what everyone needs to be? And that's, you know, that's what we're saying that that's how everyone should communicate. And I said, no, that's not how people, everyone should communicate. That's how I want my clients to communicate. That's, that's the brand I'm selling. And not to mention, this isn't a fucking desk job, right? You, you're not just phoning it in people. As Tom just pointed out, lives are at stake. You gotta bring it. So if you are nervous every time, so that's what he's saying. I'm not sure if that's what he's saying. Um, but if you are nervous every time you stand in front of a jury and you think that that is costing you, then fucking, fucking fix that shit. Like, why are we even still talking about it? 
And there are ways to fix it, but many people are like, well, I don't want to get a coach or oh, I don't want to go to therapy or oh, I don't want to stop drinking or whatever the hell excuses you're making. Stop, stop. I'm here to support you. There are a lot of other people here to support you. We are in this together. All you got to do is make the decision that says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move forward. All right, Christy, do you have the winner? And you can, once you announce it, you can bring it back here and I can sign it. Or I've got this one I can sign. Okay. All right, who is it? I do. Here's my fancy system of envelope with everyone's name in it. So the winner of the book is Jim Price. Jim Price! Jim Price, thank you for attending today and for asking us such great questions. Jim, I think, I'm assuming, already has a book. So, Jim, I'm going to sign one for you, and then you can give yours, yours away to the person that you're going to create the book club for, right? 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 So, Jim, I am writing it right now. Um, you are one of my favorite fans, and you are. I love how you um, talk to me quite a bit over Facebook. Okay, Christy will get that in the mail. Um, if there's a special address or something, just ping her so she knows that. I wanna thank everybody for coming. Thank you so much for supporting me, listening to the podcast, um, being a part of From Hostage to Hero. Christy's gonna take it from here and uh, talked about ways that you can work with me one-on-one. -on -one. Do you know that my time is very limited in 2020? I apologize, I don't apologize. I'm making some decisions for myself. And um, so I'm gonna move forward with that, but just know I can't work with everybody. I won't have time next year, um, but I do hope to see you and support you in whatever way that I can. If you haven't joined the Facebook group, please do so soon. All right, I'm signing off my friends. Christy's gonna stay with you, talk to you about some other things. Okay, thank you so much, sorry, for uh, taking the time to walk through From Hostage to Hero. What a wonderful overview of your book that was. Even as a non-attorney, I'm reading the book and learning so much from it and I'm so grateful for the time that you gave us all today. I want to tell you a few ways that you could work with Sari coming up in the new year. As she mentioned, her time is very limited, but we do have some time set aside each month for trial consulting one-on-one. -on -one. You can choose either a three-day format and that's a single focus. So you would choose either Voidir or opening to focus on. Or you can do a five-day, lots of people want to do the five-day uh, focus because that covers both Voidir and opening. At the five-day, we um, focus the first day on Voidir. The second day, we bring in a mini mock jury to do some live coaching and to try some techniques. The third day is working on opening and crafting that. The fourth day, we bring in another mini mock jury and again, do some live coaching and working around some concepts. And then the fifth day, we bring in a full panel, full 12-person 12, 12 mock jury, and um, you do your performance. They do uh, verbal and written debrief for you, feedback forms. And then uh, all of that is videotaped. And so once we dismiss them and send them on their way, then we spend some time uh, watching the video and Sari does a debrief with you. And of course, then you get all that uh, video sent to you as well for continued learning at home. The three-day focus, again, just kind of shortens that, just includes two juries, a mini mock jury uh, to work on one of the skills and then um, a full panel on the third day. So trial consulting is the first way that you could work with her. Again, we have just a few um, 
times each month set aside uh, for that and they're already filling up. So be sure to contact me if you're interested in working with Sari one-on-one. -on -one. If you're interested in more of a group format, uh, you're welcome to attend one of our studios. We have uh, three Wadir studios and two opening statement studios. You can register for those online. You can register and pay for them online at saridlm.com slash events. Uh, and under trial consulting on our website, you can also find out more information and the format for those studio times. As she mentioned, we bring in two mock juries on the third day, so you get to practice it twice. Um, our February Voir dire studio is already half sold. We only take six attorneys for each event. So you'll want to get in on that because the next one isn't until July. So in, unless you want to wait six months, six or seven months, get in on the February one. And again, if you don't have a case that you're working on right now, you can bring a previous case because, as Sari mentioned, it's about developing you as an attorney rather than just doing the workup. The workup is nice, but that's a side feature. So um, applications for the women's uh, coaching cohort will go up the first weekend, uh, first week of December. That'll be an online application and uh, that will be on our website with all the information that you need for that, so stay tuned. And then in 2020, we will be hosting uh, Facebook, uh, not Facebook, <laughs> we will be hosting a From Hostage to Hero event. Uh, Facebook might be involved in that as well, but we will have a live event for you to come to. And again, it will be From Hostage to Hero, an opportunity to hear Sari speak. More details about that will be coming out in the first little bit of 2020. So stay tuned for that as well. And we've already done our drawing, so I will get that book out to Jim Price again. Uh, welcome to everybody that was here. Thank you for attending. And if you don't have your copy of the book yet, you can get it at fromhostagetohero.com. And uh, that'll take you to the trial guide site. So be sure to get your copy of the book. Thank you, everybody, for attending today. And we will talk with you soon. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, saridlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sari Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sari's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.